0: to share with us tonight, and I just pray that you really open our hearts to the word, and um, yeah, that we'll just be able to get a lot from this message. Amen. It's fantastic to be here, uh, and it's been lovely to be invited back, and uh, it's wonderful to see so many young people here tonight, and I mean young people, anybody below the age of 50, because I unfortunately am not, but uh, I wanted to uh, just take some time tonight to talk to you about something that I'm really passionate about. Um, I know that 1 Corinthians 13 at the end uh, says, and these three things remain, faith, hope, and love, and that the greatest of these is love. And I understand that love is the greatest thing, Uh, and that uh, we need to recognise that. But I have to let you know that I'm a bit of a hope guy and I think that hope and faith sort of get a bit of a raw deal in that verse. I'm I'm a bit of a hope guy. and In fact, my wife and I were so passionate about um, the word hope. Uh, and the concept of hope that if we'd been able to adopt another child uh, when we're in Kenya, uh, we've got two that we adopted and three natural born, but if we went for the sixth one, we didn't have enough time, but if we did, we were gonna, well, my wife was going to call her Hope Matilda, which I thought was a very pretty name. But, so hope is really important to us, and I believe that uh, without hope, uh, love can falter. Without hope, our faith can wobble. And that hope is really important. And the last time that I was here, I talked about the fact that life is messy and we need to find hope in dark places. And I know that it was a bit depressing and a bit dark at times, but I want to be really buoyant and upbeat tonight. Because I want to talk about, there's a wonderful verse in 1 Peter 3.15, which says this. It says, But in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you possess. But do this with gentleness and respect. Now we need to understand the concept uh, and the, the climate where, this, where Peter was talking to the disciples about. You need to understand that he was talking to a group of people who were living in religious Israel. And they were a community of people, Israel, who were desperately waiting for the Messiah to come. And that there were great Promises that the Messiah would come and when the Messiah came, everybody would get set free. And this was something they longed for and the Messiah wasn't coming. And so they were going on with life, hoping that maybe the Messiah would come back, but he hadn't. And so their hope was being unfulfilled. Secondly, because the Messiah hadn't come, they were still living under a, the Jewish religious system. And they had to have these thousands of observances that everything that they did had to be controlled by a religious observance. That means they had to follow all the rules all the time. And it was very constricting to live under a very overt Jewish system of religion. And in fact, the Pharisees went around picking on everybody because they got one thing wrong all the time. So they were living under this weighty religion of rules and regulations. And number three, they were living in captivity because they'd been occupied by the Roman Empire. And so they had this Roman Empire oppressing them. So actually, it wasn't a very, very good time to be a Jew in Israel. And then right in the middle of this, there was this mad group of Christians. And they had a completely different worldview. Number one, the Messiah had come. Jesus had turned up. So their hope had been fulfilled. So compared to the rest of the people in Israel, they were living in great joy rather than living in a vain hope that maybe the Messiah might turn up one day. Secondly, they had been freed from all of these rules and regulations because Jesus had actually died once and for all for them on the cross and they weren't having to worry about taking the right sacrifice to make sure their sins got sacrificed every week or every month or every year or doing the right thing and having a spotless lamb and making sure they did all the right things as they led up to certain times of the year and that they had to do certain types of fasting and all this sort of stuff. The Christians had been set free from all of that because Jesus had come and died once and for all for everybody. Their sins had been forgiven forever. They didn't have to worry about this whole idea of, oh, I've got to go to the priest and get my sins forgiven all the time because Jesus had done it on the cross. And number three, they had suddenly come into this idea that it didn't matter whether the Romans were there or the Greeks were there or the Phoenicians were there or the Egyptians were there or whether they were being ruled by the Jews, they were now living for a new king. And he was going to set up a kingdom that was going to reign forever. And one day they were going to see him face to face and he was going to make all things new. So right in the middle of this fairly depressing scenario for the Jews were living this mad group of Christians who were fanatically excited and joyful about their faith. And Peter said to them, always be prepared to give an answer for the reason for the hope that you possess. Now what that suggests is that they weren't having to go around to people and say, look, I just need to let you know, right, I'm possessing this really awesome hope. Um, I know you may not have realised it, but I'm actually full of hope, and uh, I, I want to let you know what the reason is for that. No, it actually says, always be prepared to have an answer for those who come up and ask you, what is this hope that you're possessing? If you look at that scripture, it says we need to give an answer A reason for the hope that we possess, which means that the hope that we possess must be visible. There should be something about us. And there was about these mad Christians in the first century. It was demonstrably visible that they were different, that they were living with extraordinary hope in their hearts, that they were going out and doing stuff which rocked their world. And when they got to Rome, they started the first hospitals because in Rome when people were sick, or children were deformed, or people were cast away, the Christians would go and collect them up and bring them in and care for them and love for them, whereas the Romans left them out to die. In Rome, when they were persecuted, they sang praises to Jesus. Even when it meant doing it in the Colosseum, as they were being put to death, there was something about these Christians that was demonstrably different than the culture that they were living in. And so people were coming up to them and saying, what is this reason for the hope that you have? Why are you full of so much hope? What is it that makes you sparkle? What is it that makes you look at life completely differently than the way we are? Why do you look so free when we feel so bound down? And my question tonight, and the thing that I challenge myself about is, is my hope visible? Is my hope that I have as a Christian so demonstrably visible, not just in the things that I say, but in the way in which I live, that people are going to come up and say to me, What is it about you that's different? Why are you like you are? Can you please talk to me? Because I want to let you in on a little secret. We live in a world that is desperately searching for hope, that is de- desperately searching for a bit of light in the darkness. And if there is something about us that is going to draw people to us because we have the hope of Christ within us, then that is, a, I think, a wonderful way to live. So, my first question tonight is, do you really believe that we possess true and sure hope as Christians? If someone was watching you, would you be convinced of the fact that your life, that in your life, however ordinary we are, so please understand that we're not supposed to be superheroes, but... Despite the fact that we are normal human beings, there is something about us that God has done in our lives which is causing us to ooze out hope to the people around us. Do Will they recognize it in us? Now that's a fairly strong challenge. When we look at ourselves in the mirror, we see all our imperfections. I want to let you in know a secret. When God looks at you, he sees you as a marvelous Wonderful, extraordinary human being that he has placed his treasure in the life of Christ to make a difference to your world to demonstrate something extraordinary to your world he sees you as absolutely brilliant and he wants to partner with you to touch this world for him to bring life and hope to others and I want to encourage you to believe it tonight I want you to look at yourself in the mirror and not try and convince yourself. I'm not talking about 20, speaking 20 promised scriptures over you or something. I mean getting in touch with the Father, having a robust relationship with Jesus, and being able to look yourself in the mirror and go, Man, I have this extraordinary opportunity to speak hope and life to a world that desperately needs it. And I want to let you on a secret, and especially you as young people, You will be meeting people if you're not already at university but out in your work life. They are absolutely sure of what they believe. And they will aggressively and they will without any fear whatsoever push what they believe. And they don't believe there is a God. And they don't believe that we have been created and designed. And they don't believe that humankind is desperately in need of a saviour. And they believe that man is the centre of the universe. And they believe that therefore every choice and every decision and every policy we make about human interaction should be based on how it impacts on them, how they feel and how it works out in terms of what we want as human beings. And they will have no problem expressing that and they will be in the slightest bit interested, not in the slightest bit interested, in you having an opinion. Now, I'm not suggesting that we be like them. But what I am suggesting is that we should be passionate about what we believe and we should be able to express something that is extraordinary. Unfortunately, Joshua says in his book, when God was speaking with Joshua and Joshua was a little bit concerned about going into Canaan, God said to him, Be bold and courageous. And he said it three times. Be very bold and be very courageous. But at times we actually do this, and I know that when I went to uni, back in the 1920s, I went to Adelaide Uni and I got there and I did that for a while. I kept my head down, I put a paper bag over so nobody could see the hope sneaking pointing out of my eyes, and I said, I'm just going to university to do my studies so I can become a teacher. That's why I'm here, and I know there's all these people around me who have different ideas about life, so I'm just going to keep very quiet. And at times, unfortunately, we think this is a very, very smart way to live in a secular world. Can I say that God never created us to do this? He did not go to the cross for us, expend every ounce of his blood for us, for us to stick a paper bag over our heads in case someone might want to talk to us about spiritual things and because we may not have an answer and we might not get it right and we may say the wrong thing and we may not do a very good job of it and they may be more articulate than us And we're forgetting about the fact that it's God's life, God's Holy Spirit, his power, his enabling. He wants to get alongside us and walk the journey with us and speak with us and through us, however frail and feeble we may feel. And he wants us to be light into darkness. He wants us to be able to speak with power and passion about things that can set other people free. Because in the end, it's not about how I feel. It's about... The transaction that can take place as I speak truth and life and hope to others. And who knows what's going on in their lives that God might not be able to touch them and bring them to himself. And I had a university lecturer who lined me up when she found out I was a Christian. And she went for me every opportunity she could, especially if she had had a few drinks. And I had to learn how to just with compassion and grace... Just talk about the fact that while I didn't have all the answers, I knew that God loved me and I knew that God loved her. And she hated me saying that. Because deep down she was hurt and she was blaming God. And she didn't want to know that he loved her because that would mean she might have to get her relationship right with him. I want to encourage you. Don't live with your head in a paper bag. Because what you believe about what you believe is really important. I'll say that again. What you believe about what you believe is really important. Yes, I may have this belief system, but do I believe that my belief system, do I believe that the things that I have encountered in God, do I really believe that they are powerful and wonderful and extraordinary and life-changing and liberating and light to darkness? And if I believe those things, and if I believe that what God has spoken to me about and what God has spoken to you about in your life is actually world-changing, then it will change the way I think about it. It will change the way I talk about it. It will change the way I act and live. So I want to tell you very quickly tonight what our sure hope is. The first one is, and this is wonderful, and we'll talk about why it's so wonderful, is that none of us live in a godless universe. That is my sure hope. I do not live in a godless universe. There's only three options I've worked out that we've got. Number one, we as human beings were seeded by aliens. And there are, surprisingly, quite a lot of people who believe that. They believe that, yes... There was an intelligent design about it, but there is a race out there somewhere, you know, from a galaxy far, far away, a long, long time ago. We may well have descended from Luke Skywalker. That we were seeded. The second is, is that inanimate life, four billion years ago, became animate life, a single cellular organism and then 2.1 billion years ago it turned into a multicellular organism and then 500 million years ago it took off and today we have us. With no God, no intelligent design, no Wookiees, nobody involved apart from energy, inanimate life, becoming life. And the third one is, is that we were created, we were designed, we were made, we were purposed, And we are here because God spoke it into being. They're the only three options we've got. I believe in the third one. I believe in it 100%. I believe in it passionately. I believe it has so much hope for us because of that. You are not an accident. You are not the random outcome of billions of separate random events that had no connection one to another and somehow we ended up with us. I believe that when I look myself in the mirror, I go, now there, and look, I need to say this to myself because I'm 58 and getting old, I need to be able to look myself in the mirror and say, now there is an extraordinary piece of design. Look how good God is. Look what he made. And the latest figure is that we are made up of 37 trillion cells. All right? Now, young people who are under, you know, under 18, you're not that many. All right? But when you become an adult, 37 trillion. Now, are you a good counter? Can you count really well? If I ask you to step outside and count to 37 trillion, right? it's going to take you a long time. In fact, it'll probably take you about 250 years to be able to count to 37 trillion. It is a ridiculous number. That's how many cells make up your body. 37 trillion cells. And now they've worked it out because they've worked out the average weight of a cell and they've worked out our mass and they've done all the calculations. 37 trillion cells and counting. And the amazing thing about these 37 trillion cells is that nine months before you were born, you started off as one. And within that one cell... It had all of the DNA to produce you. And you've got to remember these 37 trillion cells weren't all the same. Otherwise, we would be a 37 trillion cellular blob with all the cells exactly the same. We would be able to do nothing, think nothing, speak nothing. We would just be a blob. But every single one of these 37 trillion cells has a particular responsibility and purpose, and that is that some turned out to be your toenails, and some turned out to be your your eyebrows, and some are your brain cells, and some are your blood cells, and some are your vessels, and your skin, and your re- reproductive system, and your respiratory system, and your digestive system, and your heart, and your lungs, and your liver, and everything within you. They all knew what they were going to be. I watched this thing once which showed how the eye forms and, and it connects to the brain and that the, 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 the eye, developing eyeball sends out all of these amazing fibres, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of nerve endings and the brain sends out thousands and thousands and thousands of nerve endings as you're developing and they all pick the right one and join up together so that you can see. It's called your optic nerve. It's the most extraordinary piece of design that you could ever imagine and that's just us. You are the absolutely number one evidence that there is a God because I cannot believe that those 37 trillion cells came together to produce this wonderful specimen of man by chance. I just don't think the maths adds up. I don't think the science adds up. I think that we can have great hope that you were purposed You were designed, that God had you in mind. Ephesians 1 says that before the creation of the world began, he knew your name and he purposed you to be and to be his son and to him to know you and to love you. Now that is a lot better than the idea that you are an accident, that you are the result of random chance. And as Tim Minchin would like to say, you you get to live a completely meaningless life. I think there is great hope in what we believe. And I believe that there are people out there, hundreds and thousands and millions of people who are desperate to know that they matter and that God loves them and he created them and he designed them and that they are valued and that they are intrinsically worth something to him rather than this idea that you are just one of a billion number of species that somehow came to being without any purpose or any design behind it. I think that's pretty good hope. The second thing is, and I use this photograph to speak to my 16-year-olds if they want to come on our mission trip to Kenya, and uh, this tends to frighten them a little bit. But the second thing that I absolutely believe, which gives me great hope, is that this world is broken. And I talked about that when we talked about the fact that life is messy. This world is broken. Now, if there is no God and if there is no purpose, then there's, well, it's just the way it is sometimes. And oh, well, you know, man is still intrinsically good. We're all inside, we're all lovely people and bad things just happen. I don't believe that for a moment. I believe that unfortunately, while God created a magnificent paradise, we wrecked it. We are responsible. And we're responsible for this. It's our fault. We have to take responsibility for it. We live in a broken world. But God had a plan. And this is where my sure hope comes in. And he sent Jim Caviezel. No, he sent Jesus. All right. I haven't got a photograph of Jesus. All right. Because no one took a photograph of him at the time. Uh, but we do recognize that he was probably about five foot six and he would have looked like a Jew. So, and I know that Jim doesn't. But he did such a brilliant job in Passion of the Christ, it's the best photograph I've come up with. This bloke was not just an ordinary bloke. There are lots of people who believe that Jesus came, it's an historical event. He spoke a few good things. He got in trouble with the uh, religious leaders of the time and the Romans, and he was put to death, and he died at the age of 33 and a bit. Bit of a tragedy. Uh, It would have been good if he'd gone longer, but hey, you know, at least he said some wise things like the Golden Rule. I don't believe that for a moment I believe that Jesus was sent was purposed it was from the very beginning it was God's design that even though he had created us and you are absolutely extraordinary he knew that we would mess it up he knew that this world was broken he knew we needed to send somebody in to make it right and he sent Jesus in and that there is an answer to our brokenness and there are so many people that you know who live around you all the time who you rub shoulders with who are broken and they would love to know the answer to their brokenness And Jesus is that answer because he wasn't just a good bloke. Hebrews says in the last part of it, he says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. He's been appointed heir of all things and he made the universe. This is the Jesus that I follow. This is the Jesus that I put my hope in because he is the hope for everything. Jesus. Jesus. He was God's only son. He came. He had the power and the ability to sort out the brokenness. Nobody else could, but Jesus could, and he did at the cross. And Jim had to go to the cross. Jesus had to be crucified. It wasn't just a bad luck story. It was God's purpose and design that our sin, our shame, our failure, our fears, our brokenness were all taken to the cross, nailed there and dealt with once and for all. Jesus did that on the cross and we have now been set free. Isn't this hope that we've got so cool? We should be getting excited about it. We should be getting fired up about this hope that we've been given. I'm created by God. He knows my name. He loves me. He's created me for purpose and destiny and I stuffed things up but he didn't wipe me out. He didn't say, oh, James Francis, I had so much hope for you, mate. I created you. There was so much we were going to do together and you stuffed it up. Off the list. Move aside. Find somebody else. Do a better design next time. Oh, well, Holy Spirit, we mucked it up with that one. We'll just have to move on and find somebody else. No. No. He sees us in our brokenness and he says, it's all right. I'm sending Jesus into that brokenness and he's going to take everything that we feel about ourselves sometimes when we look in that mirror and feel bad about ourselves and hate ourselves and wish we were better. He's taken all of that so that we can live free. We don't have to live under sin or condemnation anymore. Great hope. This is something to get thrilled about. And even better, because it was okay for Jesus to die for our sins, but even better, he did this. He conquered death. Now, that's a real faith bit. He came back to life. Okay, Not many people do that. He conquered death. He overcame death and he lives again. And that gives us extraordinary hope, which means that, yes, our sin weighed us down, but Jesus has taken it all and that we can now have hope that we no longer have to live under the penalty of sin, which is death but that we can look forward to eternity. I'm getting excited. I'm 58, but I'd like to do a bit of a jig. (laughs) God has been amazing. And he's no longer our judge. God now says that because of Jesus, the only thing you're going to get from me is love. That is my one and only desire and purpose and desire for you, that I love you With everything, because not doesn't say God loves, it actually says God is love. That his entire character is now determined because of Jesus. That we see when we look at God, all we see is love, he has nothing but love for you. When you're feeling rough, when you're feeling rotten, when you're feeling a bit beaten up, I want to tell you that the God is love is loving you with everything he has perfectly passionately he loves you what great hope how many people do you know are lonely are desperate for someone to love them are just wishing that they could be loved for who they are that they didn't have to perform that they didn't have to model themselves on something that social media was telling them they had to be but they could just be themselves because loves, god loves them just the way they are he thinks you are extraordinary and he loves you without condition and he only asks of us two things so instead of the thousands and thousands and thousands of rules and regulations that we were supposed to live under we now only have to live under two very very simple ones number one love him back if God loves you that much if God has destined you and purposed you that much If God sees you with nothing but the Father's heart and he wants to wrap his arms around you and pour his love and his life upon you, just love him back. An easy, easy response. Just love him back and do it with everything you've got and be passionate about it and don't be embarrassed about it. When people first get married, they just want everybody to know that they have the most pure and beautiful love that rivals the Princess Bride, if you've seen the movie. This is it. This is what everybody's been waiting for, the love affair of the century when we fall in love. God loves us with everything he has. He's wanting us to love him back with everything we've got. The greatest love affair of the century. Do people know how much we love him? Number two, the other really difficult command. Love everybody else with the same passion. If we love those around us, if we love them with a pure heart of love, we wouldn't be worried about telling them about Jesus. We wouldn't be worried about telling them of the great hope we have because we'd be so desperate for them to know what we know. We would Put it out there for the world to see. We would be loud and proud about our love affair with God and the fact that he loves them too. Now, we may not get a great reaction back sometimes, like my university lecturer or one of my uni mates, when I passionately told her about the love of God, she said, I really like your philosophy, Mike. That's very interesting. And moved on with her lentil sandwich. It had no impact on her whatsoever at that time. You know, I learned it doesn't matter. Because for a brief moment she got to know, someone told her that God loves her. And who knows what God might do with that. Do we love one another? Jesus said that they would, we would, they would know that we were his disciples. That they would know we were Christians by the way in which we loved one another. And I don't think that just meant our little circle of friends where we all love each other mutually. I think that always means the way we loved the world. Next, here's another great thing of hope. Jesus has promised that whatever comes your way, whatever your day is like, whatever your journey is like, he will be with you every step of the way. What a great, wonderful hope that we have. That when the days are awesome, Jesus is there Cheering and going for it with us, and when we're living life to the full, and, Jesus, and it's all a great adventure, God is in the midst of that, and Jesus is in the midst of that, wonderfully cheering us on. And when life is difficult and we're struggling, and heartache comes, and we have talked about this before, and when things are difficult, Jesus is right there in the middle of it, holding us to Himself and loving us, walking through the valley of the shadow of death with us, guiding us, and comforting us, being our ever present help in time of need. Jesus will be there. He will never leave you or forsake you. He said that I will always be with you. He said that nothing can ever separate you from this great love that he has for you. In the darkest day, Jesus is right there with you. It says that he mourns with us. He grieves with us. He holds us up. When we can't walk any further, he carries us. What an amazing Jesus. What an amazing friend who will never give up on us. Who will never let us down. Who will never fail us. Who will always be faithful to us he walks every day with us what wonderful hope we can wake up on those wonderful days when the sun is shining down on us and go jesus is with me and when we're walking on the road marked with suffering we can say jesus is with me i am never alone how many people do you know who don't feel like anybody walks with them who feel like they've had to do this journey by themselves and there's been no one around to carry them in their dark days Let them know that Jesus will. And the last great hope, when you get to my age and older and you suddenly realise that eternity might be around the corner, my great hope and your great hope will be is that one day you're going to see him face to face. You're going to see him like he is and we're going to be like him and he's going to wipe every tear from your eye And he's going to make everything new and he's going to love on you and you are going to live with him for eternity. One day he's going to bring the curtain down on the suffering and the pain and the broken humanity that we live in. Whether it's when we go to be with him or when Jesus just says, what's that father? Okay, that's it, enough. And he returns. He's going to make everything new we were made for eternity we were made to live with him forever and that may sound like a wonderful ending to tangled but that is what god says is true one day he's coming back for us to take us home to be with him what a wonderful hope that is that should be getting us cheering a lot more than the fact that the crows got over the line Against who'd they play on the weekend? I can't remember. So the point is this: if those things are true, if these things are our hope, do we share them well? Well unfortunately, sometimes we don't. And I feel ashamed at times by the way in which we share the message of Jesus in a way that is anything other than what I said that God is love that he loves he wants us to love him with everything we've got and that he wants us to love others with everything we've got I went to these groups website and they actually have a counter a live web camera counter which tells all the people who are going to hell while I'm looking at their website and it's got them cheering I know, uh, my initial reaction is a laugh about it, but then you actually think about what they're doing and they're actually celebrating people going to an eternity without God. And unfortunately, they get more airtime than we do. We need to be sharing our faith, our hope in love to a world that desperately needs to hear it to drown out the haters. They need to see in us something that's going to draw them. Do you think that is drawing people to Jesus? We need to really think hard about how we share the gospel. We need to share hope with grace and truth. And I've been thinking about this. It says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. It didn't say that Jesus was full of grace on some occasions and truth. On some occasions, it said that Jesus was full of grace and truth. Sometimes we think that, oh well, I've got to be compassionate and gracious towards people, so I'll water down the truth. Or sometimes we go, well, I've got to tell the truth, even though I can't be gracious and compassionate about it. Can I say that that's a wrong thinking? And I've been challenging myself about this recently. That's wrong thinking, because grace and truth should be mutually entwined. We should always be gracious and compassionate. Because that is how God has treated us. But we should also be telling truth. Passionately, fervently telling the truth about God and the fact that he has come into a broken world to redeem it. We need to do both. And they should actually be so entwined that they should be the same thing. And I want to encourage you tonight to learn how to speak with grace and truth to whoever you meet. So I want to finish off with a story. And uh, I thought I'd pick one, a a relevant topic. And that is because this is the one question my students ask me all the time. When I talk about this stuff at Tyndale, my students go, all right, Mr. Potter, what do you think about this? And this is usually that, that and transgenderism. They're the two I get at the moment. What do you think about this topic? And obviously one of the questions is, where do you stand on abortion, Mr. Potter? And they say that to me. And I go like this. Now, I could be the ultra-liberal left, And I can do the progressive left really well. If you're not a woman, and you're an old, grey, crippled old man like you, Potter, you have no right to speak into this space whatsoever. You're an old man. You're a grey man. You have nothing to say in this area. This is about the right of women. This is about protecting the rights of women. And you can get lost. You have no voice. And in fact, as Tori Shepherd wrote in the newspaper recently, I'm not getting rid of an unborn child. I'm just getting rid of a clump of cells. In fact, these clump of cells, because they're not able to live by themselves, they're nothing worse than a parasite. And I should be able to get rid of this parasite whenever I like. Now, that's a bit harsh. That's the ultra left. I can do the ultra right as well. I don't care if that unborn child is putting, threatening the life of a woman. It's a sacred life and it, needs to, and it needs to live even if it kills both of them. And if you have an abortion, then you're a murderer. And in fact, we're going to bring in laws to say that you can be prosecuted. And in fact, some people are saying that any woman who has an abortion should be executed. I don't think that fits into the grace and compassion and truth and love either. So they look at me and they say, Mr. Potter, can you answer the question? And I said, very simple. Let me tell you how I think. This is how I think. What do I believe about you? And they look at me and eventually one puts her hand up. And I said, come on, what Bible verse... What thing do I share about you? If you're in Mrs. Potter's Year 9 class, what does she say about you all the time? And they say, Psalm 139. I was knitted together in my mother's womb and I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And God has ordained all the days of my life. I said, I absolutely believe that you are precious to God. That God knew your name before the creation of the world to be his. I believe that God beautifully and wonderfully knitted you together in your mother's womb. And it doesn't matter whether you've got an intellectual disability or a physical disability or whether you're really clever at this or you're really clever at that. And it doesn't matter what colour you are and it doesn't matter what race you come from and it doesn't matter whether you're tall or short or fat or thin or whether you've got blue eyes or green eyes or brown eyes or hazel eyes and it doesn't matter anything about you you know, that make because you are you and you are unique and you are special and you are extraordinary and God knitted you together and he loves you just the way you are and you are amazing. And because he did that, you are absolutely precious to him. And they look at me and I say, and that's what I believe about you. And because I believe about that about you, I also believe that about every single unborn child. That God knows their name. That they are precious to him. That they are loved by him. And they say to me, well, what about if the baby's going to kill the mother? Then I said, then you need to take precautions to keep the mother alive. And in those cases, I don't have a problem. Because there's no point letting them both die. Keep the mother alive. I said, if it's an ectoptic pregnancy where the birth is in the fallopian tube and that is never going to become a real life and it's just going to kill and poison the mother, then you have to make a determination. Because that is protecting the mother. Absolutely. What about when it's rape, Mr. Potter? I said, horrific. We'll never know what it's like. Can not imagine that it would be anything other than horrific and unimaginable? And we need to show those people grace and compassion and care. I said, but just remember, one, it's a very small percentage. And number two, I actually know a couple of dear women who were the product of rape. And one of them spends her entire life passionately, Advocating for for rescuing women out of domestic violence and rescuing trafficked women, and because of her own experience, she has this wonderful passion to make a difference. And yes, her birth mama, mother took her to full term and then put her up for adoption. And that woman now is making an extraordinary difference in the lives of thousands and thousands and thousands of women around the world. And I go, well, what about a kid that's born into poverty? And I said, well, I've got a couple of boys myself. And uh, when Daniel was six months old, I was holding him in my arm and this American woman came up to me and looked at me in the eye and said, what's going on here? And I said, oh, this is Daniel. We're you fostering him. Well, what's happening then? Well, we're we going to adopt him. No, nah, shouldn't do that. Shouldn't do that. He'll be taken out of his culture. He'll be taken out of his heritage. He will always live scarred. He will always be less than he was meant to be. But it would have been better just to have aborted him, just kill him off. I said, to my kids, I said to my students, did not Daniel have the right to live? And now that you know him, isn't it unimaginable for him not to have lived? Because God still had a purpose for that little boy's life. God had a destiny for that little boy's life. Now he's 23 and I'm still saying, God, anytime you want to show me what his future is, that will be awesome, but he is precious to God. He is loved by God. God knew his name. God rescued him from a pit. And God has a purpose and a destiny for him, for him to know him and to love him. And so my heartbeat, I say to my students, is that therefore, I'm, this is not about me hating women. It's not about fighting against women's rights. It's about me being passionate about the fact that God creates and designs us and loves us from the very beginning and that we have extraordinary value to him. And they look back at me, There's no hate, there's no antagonism, there's no drawing lines in the sand. There's just a recognition that I love the unborn child. You see, we can share even in the difficult conversations from grace and truth. We can do it. And we may not always get a great reaction, but if our hands are clean and our hearts are pure, we can speak passionately about the hope we have. And we hope that as we do that, that they're listening And maybe God is speaking to something broken and hurting in their life that may cause them to look to him. So share your hope with passion and love in your hearts and a little bit of courage too. And for goodness sake, go and do something and model his love and his grace to the world. Ashley, exactly. You don't have to be blaring trumpets but you're just making a difference by doing something a bit courageous. You look a bit like me now. I apologise. But people know what you're doing and why you're doing it. Cancer, homeless kids, awesome. Demonstrating the hope of Jesus to a world that desperately needs to hear it. God bless you. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the great God of hope. We thank you that uh, you give us hope, not a vain hope, not a oh, I really hope this is true, I wish this is true, but something that is sure and trustworthy, that we can stand on and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you created us, that you care for us, that you love us, that you watch over us, that you came to restore us, to redeem us, to bring us back to yourself that you will always be with us, that you will walk every step of the way with us, that you will love us and journey with us through the good days and the bad and that we are precious to you and that one day you will call us home. Father, I pray that each person here would know that hope for themselves and that, Father, that it would grow and it would become an overflowing river, that, Father, they won't be able to help themselves but talk about it with others. I pray, Lord, that we can be people of hope that we can speak about your extraordinary love for us, that our faith can be vibrant and that our hope can be tangible to a world that desperately needs it. Father, we know that this world lives in great darkness and it needs light, but it doesn't need to be whacked around with doctrine. It doesn't need to be spoken down to. It just needs to be loved and to know that there is a God that loves them. And I pray, Father, that we can be your hands, your feet, your voice, that we imperfectly can also be your radiance like Jesus was, that we can do what he did and bring hope to a world in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you very much for having me. Have a wonderful week.